It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas, as the entertainment capital of the world, has had its share of big news stories beginning in the 1950s and through today. One of those big stories happened in 2003 when Roy Horn was injured on stage during a performance of Siegfried and Roy's Magic Show by Montecor the Tiger. The story and details were always confusing and have remained so. Now a new eight-part podcast series, Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy, fills in many of the details from that tragedy and features exclusive interviews with many of the people close to the famed duo. My guest, veteran investigative journalist and Emmy-winning filmmaker Stephen Leckhart, wrote, narrated, and executive produced the podcast, available as an Apple original on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow Stephen on Instagram at Leckhart. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What stirred your initial interest in Siegfried and Roy? Well, I'm a child of the 80s, and so they always loomed large. And my parents actually went to see them. Uh, I think it was like late 80s or early 90s. And they didn't take me. I went to summer camp instead. And oh, when I got wrong back, choice, there, wrong choice. <laughs> no, but it was nice for them. And I had fun and I learned how to, uh, I remember learning how to shoot air, bows and arrows, which was cool. <laughs> uh, but when I came back, they were telling me stories about what they'd seen on their trip. And I just remember hearing what Siegfried and Roy did with these tigers. And as a kid, just being kind of mystified and there was no Google. So I couldn't go look online to see what that looked like. And then I remember as time wore on getting a little older and seeing photographs of them, but I never got to see the show. And in 2003, when the incident happened on stage, uh, tragically with Roy, I remember having a couple thoughts and one was just, um, well, geez, I guess I, I'm never going to get to see the show now. How sad for them and him. And then the the other thing was just the question of what happened, you know, after 44 years and all those shows with all those tigers, why now out of all of a sudden? And so that that really planted a seed for that idea in my head of that question I wanted to answer. And with this podcast, we set out to answer that one and many more. How did you end up putting together the podcast and how did it end up on Apple Podcasts? Because you obviously had to research produce, narrate, all of it, get guests, interviews of some people that are no longer with us. So how did that all come about? A great question. So I'm a journalist by trade and a documentary filmmaker. And so uh, oftentimes people see the work that I do and reach out and say, well, are you interested in partnering? And in this case, sort of right before the pandemic, I got an email from a guy by the name of Will Malnati, who runs a company called At Will Media, and they make podcasts. And, you know, I had sort of toyed with the idea of making a podcast because nonfiction audio documentaries, as it were, are very similar to documentaries. It's just we build in documentaries what are called radio edits. They just that's the first thing you do before you have picture and before you shoot stuff. So I'm very used to working in sound and audio and doing sound design and telling a story. And so we got to talking and 
he, I, he, he sort of threw me a couple ideas that he and his team had. I don't even remember the other ones because the second he said Siegfried and Roy, I just said, <laughs> I want to do that one. And um, as we were partnering and starting to kind of marry his research with kind of my vision for what questions I wanted to answer, you know, ask and answer, the pandemic hit. And I remember vividly having this feeling like, well, now it, now it's kind of the best time in the world to do this because if I can't go down the street and buy, a, a, you know, groceries in the grocery store and get like a bundle of bananas, how am I going to get on a plane with a camera and go film? So I like to say that some people took the pandemic as an opportunity to bake bread and learn how to do that. And um, I just figured out and uh, learned how to make a podcast. And with the great technology we have today, you're able to put it all together without necessarily having to leave your house and try and find a loaf of bread. That's right. So I, uh, I'm i based in Los Angeles. Our entire production team and the production company are based in New York. And minus um, my going to New York for the Tribeca Film Festival, where we premiered a little bit of the uh, the podcast, sort of a sneak peek, we never were in the same place. But we met on Zooms weekly and had lots of phone calls and worked in Google documents and they would build audio and send it to me and we had scripts and we'd go through the whole thing. And as far as Apple's concerned, you know, we basically built some early materials and did a sample, uh, an audio sample that's usually called like a sizzle, right? And we do that in film too. It's called a sizzle reel. And I remember as we were talking about the podcast, my partner, Will, said, I think we're going to need a narrator. And I said, oh, yeah, OK, sure. And uh, he said, no, I think you should be the guy. And I was like, well, all right, I guess. Um, sure, fine. Let's let's try it. And so then we put some tape together with some of the archival that we'd done. And we brought it out to a number of places. And uh, the second we started talking with Apple, they they were so enthusiastic. I think they really understand what the vision was and they wanted to support it. And so as soon as we sort of started making this and really got onboarded with them, um, you know, we started working kind of in a traditional network style where we would send them cuts and they would give us feedback. And at the very beginning, we sort of structured out the whole thing. I wrote out a treatment in terms of where I thought the story would go and who you would meet along the way. And that's kind of like a uh, it's like a first draft and more of a roadmap. And then once you start finding the people to interview, you sit and do these long, long interviews like you do. And you start to cut and work all the pieces together. You start to shape the story. And we did that basically all through 2021. And now it's done. And the two parts that I see, and I've been listening to each episode, the two parts that are part of this is archival sound and news clips, which take time but are accessible through one means or another. The other part, which is harder, I would think, is finding people who you want to talk to who were around at the time and who were willing to talk about it. And you scored some success with a lot of people that were part of that world. One or two, of course, declined, and I want to get to that in a second. But in terms of the people that you interviewed, from your perspective, who was the most important connection? That's a great question. One of the most important people who came on very early was David Neal, who now is retired from his job, which was at the USDA as a private, or not a private, but as an investigator. And he was a detective. 
And, you know, most people don't know this, but I learned and I didn't know this until I started making the podcast. But um, the USDA, in addition to putting stickers on the beef that you buy in the supermarket or the milk you buy and regulating that for public consumption and safety, they also, as of 1985, they regulate and oversee the use of public settings with animals for exotic animals all over America. And so they don't put a sticker on the show at Siegfried and Roy, but they're responsible for issuing a license that gives them the, the, the access and the ability to have these animals, to care for them, to transport them between, you know, the place that they have that's their home, the other places where they keep them, then the secret garden at the Mirage, and then the show. So some, someone's job at the USDA is to come out and to just put checks on a document to make sure that everything is above board. And everything was always very much above board. There were no citations that I found. There was nothing negative that I found with you, with at least Siegfried and Roy show. But when this attack happened, David had to get on an airplane and go to Vegas and start an investigation in the midst of this media frenzy. And so I knew he existed. I wasn't sure where he was. And I just remember finally getting him on the phone and we probably had, I probably spoke to him for at least an hour and a half the first time I called him and I didn't record anything. I just was like, here's who I am. Here's my vision for this thing. Here's the research that we've done. Here's the great team we've assembled and what we're, what we're trying to do. And I'm always very sincere with people about what it is I want to do. I don't, I don't believe in trickery. I, I don't, this is not how I, I operate. So I'm very honest with people about the subjects we're planning to cover and how uh, I, I feel that their voice will be instrumental in helping us tell the story correctly. And I wound up interviewing David, I think, four times for a total of maybe close to 12 hours. He was a phenomenal addition. He sounded sounds like a straight shooter. And a lot of people don't realize, again, they're thinking of, yes, there's the for people outside of Las Vegas, the Metropolitan Police Department here that would investigate what went on. But no one would think that there would be a federal part of that. And yet there, there it was. Did he agree initially to do it? Or did you have to convince him over the hour and a half you first talked to him? Yeah, he he was very open to having the conversation. And I don't recall ever feeling like he was going to say no, if that makes sense. There are other people where they were much more on the fence. And I think until we talked, then it flipped them over. And that I think is just a testament, not just to me, it's a testament to our producer, Alexandra Zaslow, who also did a number of our interviews and took certain pieces and parts of the story. Um, and so we divided and conquered, you know, and, and she did a phenomenal job sort of explaining what our vision was, what our pedigree is. And she's, you know, has her own credits prior to us working together. And so I think between the two of us sort of dividing and conquering and having these conversations, the bigger challenge was just sort of being focused on who do we need and who do we want? Because, you know, a show as big as Siegfried and Roy, you could spend three weeks straight just talking to dancers. You, you know, there's just so many people that their show touched. So where do you draw the line and when do you think you have enough? There were so many celebrities they were friends with, but even some of the people that were celebrities that we wound up in interacting with or talking to, you know, they, well, the, when celebrities hang out, sometimes maybe they hang out once every few years because they're so busy. So 
they don't have as much to share as you would hope because they're not there day to day. People who worked on the show and then were there day to day really like knew these people and engaged with them. Um, so we really had to kind of draw the line at a certain point. I think all totaled in the show, other than my voice, you will hear 31 different people in original interviews. We conducted, I think, 33 taped interviews. Uh, and then beyond that, there's probably an additional 10 to 15 people that we talked to, but were unable to record or didn't record. But gave you background information. Gave background information or perspective, or there are people who weren't really willing to share much, but were willing to at least have the conversation and then for various reasons decided not to participate. The one thing, and I mentioned it in the beginning, but it really needs to be restated, and that is all these years later, the impact of Siegfried and Roy and what happened to Roy on stage is so strong that you were able to put together this eight-part series and get Apple Podcasts to present it. So that's clearly, and it's obviously it's a tip of the hat to the production crew and you, but it's also a testament to their impact that it's still a matter of public interest and curiosity. Absolutely. They, as a magic act, they... Rate, they they sold enough tickets that it totals up to a billion dollars, you know, over time. The thousands of shows, millions of people from all over the globe came to Vegas specifically just to see them. They were pop culture phenomena, right? And so anytime I think you can tell a story about a big kind of blockbustery sort of topic, as long as you do a good job, people will listen or watch. And I've been fortunate in my career to tackle some pretty well-known big subjects. And I think that maybe potentially added into Apple's desire that, you know, okay, this is, if you're going to work, if you're going to support a project, this team feels like the right people to do it. How hard was it to find people still around and also willing to talk? Because many years have gone by here and people disperse. They don't necessarily live in Las Vegas. They may live elsewhere. And some people who were close to Siegfried and Roy may not want to talk too. So there's, there's that challenge. But how hard was it to find the people that you did who then went on the record? It's a great question. It, it's a mix. You know, I mean, there are certain people who are very active online. They have LinkedIn pages. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. It's not hard to necessarily find those people. For other people, like I mentioned, David Neal, He's not very online and he is not very present. And so therefore, as, a, as an investigative journalist, I have ways in which I use to track down people to figure out their home phone numbers or addresses. You know, I'll often sort of put a snail mail letter to certain people. And I'm always sort of delighted when somebody reads it and responds or I'll leave a voicemail message. And sometimes I don't even know the person I'm calling if the number is still active. And I'll have people call me back and say, hey, I got your voicemail. I don't know who so-and-so is, but I just want to let you know I'm not that person. And uh, so that sort of helps. But as you start to get traction and as you talk to certain people, you know, my I learned this tip a long time ago, but the, the last question I usually always ask everybody when I first meet them and start reporting around them is who else should I talk to? Who else was there? 
who else do you think would be interesting? And that sort of helps. And then when you reach out to that person, well, they know that you are that you already talked to the other person. So then that gets you a little bit of leeway and buy-in. And there were certain people in Siegfried and Roy's orbit we didn't talk to until pretty later in the game. We had done so much legwork, so much research. And, you know, some of the key interviews we did didn't happen until very later stage for that reason. And I think helped those people feel comfortable that, you know what, this guy and this team, they're going to do right by the story, even though they're covering some difficult subjects, their intention is not to make something that is purely salacious. And then on the other hand, the intention wasn't to make something that was purely hagiographic and only, you know, sort of through the gold veneer, you know, that might be done otherwise. And so it's a tough line to ride, but I think we did a great job doing that. And I think that that ultimately is what convinced a lot of people that it was worth their time. I'm sure because of it was so long ago that there are a few people that are no longer with us, but of the people that are with us. Who was the most important that you were unable to convince to come on the podcast? And it's an interesting podcast because you don't laser focus on one element. There's a lot of color in there, and there's a lot of broad strokes, and there's a lot of backfill in the sense of giving the whole picture of Siegfried and Roy, including their career, their relationship, and then what happened on stage. So there's obviously some people that you would have liked to have participated, and you were able to get sound through news bites, but they did not want to cooperate. So who were a couple of those kind of people? Yeah, I mean, Steve Wynn was responsible for bringing them to the Mirage when he built the Mirage. I think uh, I think they opened in 90 or 91, and it was announced that they would be going there, I think, in 89. And what that meant for Vegas, what that meant for Siegfried and Roy, and what it meant for Steve Wynn was really big. But you know, Steve Wynn is not really doing any media as of as of today. You don't see him on television. He's just it's not in that part of his phase of his life. So uh, I didn't take it personally when he declined our request and it didn't hurt my feelings. What about Bernie Human? Yeah, I mean, I, I had spoken to Bernie a number of times prior to even working on this project because he when he was a teenager growing up in Miami, he actually met Muhammad Ali and became friendly with Muhammad Ali. And when I was uh, writing a two-part documentary about Muhammad Ali, or circa 2017-18, I remember getting introduced to Bernie and meeting him and talking with him on the phone. And I remember at that moment, hearing the sound of his voice. And at that point, I didn't know he had been the manager of Siegfried and Roy for several decades. I just was listening to this guy who was a raconteur. And I was like, what a storyteller. And it always planted the seed for me that like, well, geez, like, if this is the kind of guy that was in their orbit, who else was in their orbit? And so at the beginning of all of this, I remember calling him and it was before I think Roy had passed and it was before Siegfried for sure had passed. And I remember telling him about what I was hoping to achieve and what I wanted to do. And he politely declined. You know, he he just said, I've I'll tell my stories when I'm ready, you know, on my own terms. And I think also he he did say, you know, I've given so many interviews and talked about this to death on in media. And he said, you should go find just go find all that stuff. And I and that's what we did. Exactly. Without giving anything away, because there's some surprises along the way, and I, 
I listened to every episode and the seventh episode of the podcast is not there yet and it'll always be out on Apple Podcasts. So without giving anything away in that sense, what were some of the surprising things you discovered when you did your research and when you talked to some of these people? Yeah, I mean, I uh, without giving it away, there's there's some bombshells to come. You know, we there's things that we figured out early in our research and then certain things that we built up and learned more about over time that are dropping in some of the later episodes. And they are, to be honest, really shocking and very unsettling. And, you know, some of it involves animals and some of it doesn't involve animals um, without giving away too much. But suffice to say, early episodes have sort of played and pe- and the response we're getting is that people are wondering, when does animal welfare come into the story? Because early in the series, we describe moments in which, you know, tigers are in a truck that gets stolen. And we never comment on the question of whether or not that's humane, quote unquote, to have those tigers traveling around in a truck in the first place. And that's by design, because we're going to get into animal welfare and the question of animal welfare and the USDA and also uh, Siegfried and Roy and their wider orbit. We get in, uh, into all that in a later episode. And that's why Dave, again, is very important, who you were able to talk to for all those hours. Correct, because the central question of his investigation and the USDA's investigation was, well, what happened here? Because people in the audience reported seeing and hearing the microphone being tapped on the tiger by Roy. And if you think about it, okay, it's just a tap with a microphone. It may not be, may not hurt the animal, but I don't know. I, if that had never happened on stage before and wasn't supposed to happen, well, what was going on there? Was it, was it quote unquote animal abuse? And that was ultimately the question that he had to answer was every step of the way, everything that happened, everything that people saw, was there something terrible that was going on behind the scenes? Was it someone sitting in the audience who was trying to provoke the tiger into attacking him? Was he then tapping the microphone because the tiger had been stirred out of his routine by an animal rights activist in the, in the audience? These are all questions that were being asked. And there's a reason why we call the podcast Wild Things. It's because it's not just a show about the wild things on stage. It's also a show about the wild things that swirled around them. And every episode gets progressively wilder. Going back to my question, and without giving anything away for succeeding episodes, in the beginning parts that have already aired, are there any surprises that you would want to share with us? In other words, were there a couple of things you discovered within the first two or three episodes? And I, I would re- recommend people listen to it from beginning to end, because there's a lot of material from the beginning episode onward until you'll finish the eight-part series. Yeah, I mean, early in the series, we cover their childhoods in Germany. And, you know, you if you just heard them speak, you know that they're from Germany. Those accents are real. What I didn't know and what we, we cover in depth is, you know, their fathers, they were both born around World War II, and their fathers were in the German military. And, you know, Germany did not win that war, and it was bloody and terrible. And those men came back from the war traumatized by what they experienced and therefore unfortunately traumatized their children so both Siegfried and Roy grew up in abusive homes 
um, with abusive fathers and stepfathers and how that impacted them as little boys and what it meant to them moving forward. Yeah, I don't know how you ever really recover from that. And I was really surprised to learn that, you know, and, and how does that impact them and, and, and even just how they met and that they had that in common with one another is really fascinating. And, and I'll just say that, you know, Siegfried discovered magic and he, and he says it in the series, but there's a moment where he made a coin disappear for his father. And it was one of the first times he could remember his father actually sort of giving him any kind of positive feedback. And he says in the show, after that, my magic became my life. Sure. So it's that a coping mechanism. Yes. And it's also, it's, it's just that positive at attention meant something to him. So every time he started to connect with people through magic, it probably lessened the, the, the sort of hurt and pain that he lived with. And there's something beautiful about that. Um, it makes what he was doing so much bigger than the money or the fame or the celebrity. And at its core, it's why I think he continued and wanted to keep doing magic for as long as he did. They were both pretty private, which is why I think the podcast helps explain who they were, because you go into that kind of detail with Siegfried and with Roy. What about, from your point of view, lessons learned from putting together this eight-part series? Hmm. What are the lessons that I learned from putting together the eight-part series? Either, a either a psychology of people you've talked to or some technical things you've learned that you didn't know before or the fact that you could function in a COVID environment and get this done. I don't know. That's why I'm going to yeah. let you say what it is rather than me trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I would say one of the biggest things I had to learn and figure out was was how much effort and trying it took to not sound like I was trying when I was recording the voiceover. Because you weren't used to narrating. Is that why? Yeah, it's not. It. I mean, for me, I wanted to find a way of doing it that felt conversational and is how I talk. But I, we obviously couldn't go into a studio and just have me blab and blab and blab forever. So figuring out something that didn't feel performative and felt organic and natural took a lot more effort than I would necessarily think. And hopefully when people listen to the show, it, it sounds and flows as it should. But that was new to me. Whereas structuring a story and interviewing people are things I've been doing for so long that that's the stuff that it doesn't, it still takes work, but it's very familiar. Whereas the other thing was just building reps, you know. I think also as to me, it sounded like a cross between NPR and conversational speech. So yeah, I think you hit the right tone. Thank you. That that's that's I will take that as a compliment from uh, somebody who has podcasted a lot more and a lot longer than I have. The you're welcome. The before I let you go, what was the most challenging part about the process of putting together this eight part series on Siegfried and Roy? Was it finding guests? I alluded to it earlier on in our conversation, but was it the just the amassing of all this data? The sourcing of audio clips from many, many years ago with people that you couldn't get on the show, but their voices are represented? Or was it structuring the story? I know it's second nature to you. What was the most challenging part of all that? You know, I think, honestly, this stuff is like running a marathon, right? Like, and it's, and there's sprints in, in different places, but it's, I think the toughest thing is just from the beginning, planting the flag and saying this 
to be, and then knowing when you need to restructure things based on new information and absorbing that feedback and not being so stuck in your ways that this is how it has to be. So not shoving around, you know, sort of pegged through a square hole is really important. But at the same time, also having your confidence to say this is the vision and we need to stick to it. So it, I guess it's that's the toughest thing is just when do you need to veer away from what the plan was and when do you stick to the plan and for what reasons? And then with the team, my job is very much to just make sure that everyone is heard, create, uh, I think, an open forum for us all to discuss how we feel about all of it and then ultimately make decisions and explain what the intent of those decisions are. I'm not somebody who's a very top-down manager, although I have a very clear vision for things. I like to create an environment for people to feel like they can contribute, they can be heard. And sometimes some of the best ideas didn't come from me. They just came from me sitting in a room and hearing smart people say stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was a real team effort. And I think that's, you know, even though you only hear my voice, you don't hear all the people who made it. That's not just, it's not just me. Let's put it that way. And they're not, and they're acknowledged in the podcast as well. Yes, we have credits at the end, and all of our all of our mothers and fathers listen to that part. <laughs> well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been veteran investigative journalist and Emmy-winning filmmaker Stephen Leckhart, who wrote, narrated, and executive produced the eight-part podcast series Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy, available as an Apple original on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow Stephen on Instagram at Leckhart, L-E-C-K-A-R-T. Stephen, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Bring us your fantasy.